Chapter Seven of the Revolt of the Angels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Revolt of the Angels by Anatole France, translated by Mrs. Wilfred Jackson. Chapter Seven, of a somewhat lively interest, whereof the moral will, I hope, appeal greatly to my readers, since it can be expressed by this sorrowful query thought whither dost thou lead me for it is a universally admitted truth that it is unhealthy to think and that the true wisdom lies in not thinking at all all the books were now once more assembled in the pious keeping of monsieur sariette but this happy reunion was not destined to last the following night twenty volumes left their places among them the lucretius of prior de vendome within a week the old hebrew and greek texts had all returned to the summer house and every night during the ensuing month they left their shelves and secretly went on the same path others betook themselves no one knew whither on hearing of these mysterious occurrences Monsieur René Desparvieu merely remarked with frigidity to his librarian, "'My poor Sariette, all this is very queer, very queer indeed.' And when Monsieur Sariette tentatively advised him to lodge a formal complaint, or to inform the commissaire de police, Monsieur Desparvieu cried out upon him, "'What are you suggesting, Monsieur Sariette?' divulge domestic secrets make a scandal you cannot mean it i have enemies and i am proud of it i think i have deserved them what i might complain about is that i am wounded in the house of my friend attacked with unheard-of violence by fervent loyalists who i grant you are good catholics but exceedingly bad christians in a word i am watched spied upon shadowed and you suggest monsieur sariette that i should make a present of this comic opera mystery this burlesque adventure this story in which we both cut somewhat pitiable figures to a set of spiteful journalists do you wish to cover me with ridicule the result of the colloquy was that the two gentlemen agreed to change all the locks in the library. Estimates were asked for, and workmen called in. For six weeks the Desparvieux household rang from morning till night with the sound of hammers, the hum of center bits, and the grating of files. Fires were always going in the abode of the philosophers and globes, and the people of the house were simply sickened by the smell of heated oil. The old, smooth, easy-running locks were replaced, on the cupboards and doors of the rooms, by stubborn and tricky fastenings. There was nothing but combinations of locks, letter-pad locks, safety bolts, bars, chains, and electric alarm bells. All this display of ironmongery inspired fear. The lock cases glistened, and there was much grinding of bolts. To gain access to a room, a cupboard, or a drawer, it was necessary to know a certain number, 
of which Monsieur Sariette alone was cognizant. His head was filled with bizarre words and tremendous numbers, and he got entangled among all these cryptic signs, these square, cubic, and triangular figures. He himself couldn't get the doors and the cupboards undone, yet every morning he found them wide open, and the books thrown about, ransacked, and hidden away. In the gutter of the Rue Servandoni, a policeman picked up a volume of Salomon Reinach on the identity of Barabbas and Jesus Christ. As it bore the bookplate of the Desparvieux library, he returned it to the owner. Monsieur René Desparvieux, not even deigning to inform Monsieur Sariette of the fact, made up his mind to consult a magistrate, a friend in whom he had complete confidence, to wit, a certain Monsieur Aubel, counsellor of the law courts, who had put through many an important affair. He was a little plump man, very red, very bald, with a cranium that shone like a billiard ball. He entered the library one morning, feigning to come as a book lover, but he soon showed that he knew nothing about books. While all the busts of the ancient philosophers were reflected in his shining pate, he put diverse insidious questions to Monsieur Sariette, who grew uncomfortable and turned red, for innocence is easily flustered. From that moment, Monsieur Desabelles had a mighty suspicion that Monsieur Sariette was the perpetrator of the very thefts he denounced with horror and it immediately occurred to him to seek out the accomplices of the crime. As regards motives, he did not trouble about them. Motives are always to be found. Monsieur Desabelles told Monsieur Renard Desparvieux that if he liked, he would have the house secretly watched by a detective from the prefecture. "'I will see that you get Mignon,' he said. He is an excellent servant, assiduous and prudent. By six o'clock next morning, Mignon was already walking up and down outside the Desparvieux's house, his head sunk between his shoulders, wearing love-locks which showed from under the narrow brim of his bowler hat, his eye cocked over his shoulder. He wore an enormous dull black mustache, his hands and feet were huge. In fact, his whole appearance was distinctly memorable. He paced regularly up and down from the nearest of the big ram's head pillars which adorn the Hôtel de la Sordière to the end of the Rue Garancière, toward the apse of St. Sulpice Church and the dome of the Chapel of the Virgin. Henceforth it became impossible to enter or leave the Desparvieux's house without feeling that one's every action, that one's very thoughts, were being spied upon. Mignon was a prodigious person, endowed with powers that nature denies to other mortals. He neither ate nor slept. At all hours of the day and night, in wind and rain, he was to be found outside the house, and no one escaped the X-rays of his eye. One felt pierced through and through, penetrated to the very marrow, worse than naked, 
bare as a skeleton. It was the affair of a moment. The detective did not even stop, but continued his everlasting walk. It became intolerable. Young Maurice threatened to leave the paternal roof if he was to be so radiographed. His mother and his sister, Berta, complained of his piercing look. It offended the chaste modesty of their souls. Mademoiselle Caporal, young Léon de Parvier's governess, felt an indescribable embarrassment. Monsieur René de Parvieux was sick of the whole business. He never crossed his own threshold without crushing his hat over his eyes to avoid the investigating ray, and without wishing old Sariette, the fawn say origo of all the evil, at the devil. The intimates of the household, such as Abbé Patouille and Uncle Gaillatin, made themselves scarce. Visitors gave up calling. Tradespeople hesitated about leaving their goods. The carts belonging to the big shops scarcely dared stop. But it was among the domestics that the spying roused the most disorder. The footman, afraid under the eye of the police, to go and join the cobbler's wife over her solitary labors in the afternoon, found the house unbearable and gave notice. Odile, Madame de Parvieux's lady-maid, not daring, as was her custom after her mistress had retired, to introduce Octave, the handsomest of the neighboring bookseller's clerks, to her little room upstairs, grew melancholy, irritable, and nervous, pulled her mistress's hair while dressing it, spoke insolently, and made advances to Monsieur Maurice. The cook, Madame Malgoire, a serious matron of some fifty years, having no more visits from Auguste, the wine merchant's man in the Rue Servandoni, and being incapable of suffering a privation so contrary to her temperament, went mad, sent up a raw rabbit to table, and announced that the Pope had asked her hand in marriage. At last, after a fortnight of superhuman assiduity, contrary to all known laws of organic life and to the essential conditions of animal economy, Mignon, the detective, having observed nothing abnormal, ceased his surveillance and withdrew without a word, refusing to accept a gratuity. In the library the dance of the books became livelier than ever. "'That is all right,' said Monsieur de Abel. Since nothing comes in nor goes out, the evildoer must be in the house. The magistrate thought it possible to discover the criminal without police warrant or enquiry. On a date agreed upon at midnight, he had the floor of the library, the treads of the stairs, the vestibule, the garden path leading to Monsieur Maurice's summer house, and the entrance hall of the latter all covered with a coating of talc. The following morning, Monsieur de Abel, assisted by a photographer from the prefecture, and accompanied by Monsieur René de Barvieux and Monsieur Sariette, came to take the imprints. They found nothing in the garden, the wind had blown away the coating of talc. 
nothing in the summer-house either. Young Maurice told them he thought it was some practical joke, and that he had brushed away the white dust with the hearth-brush. The real truth was, he had effaced the traces left by the boots of Odile, the lady's maid. On the stairs and in the library, the very light print of a bare foot could be discerned. It seemed to have sprung into the air and to have touched the ground at rare intervals and without any pressure. They discovered five of these traces. The clearest was to be found in the abode of the busts and spheres, on the edge of the table where the books were piled. The photographer took several negatives of this imprint. "'This is more terrifying than anything else,' murmured Monsieur Sariette. Monsieur Abel did not hide his surprise. Three days later, the anthropometrical department of the prefecture returned the proofs exhibited to them, saying that they were not in the records. After dinner, Monsieur René showed the photographs to his brother Gaetan, who examined them with profound attention, and after a long silence exclaimed, "'No wonder they have not got this at the prefecture. It is the foot of a god or of an athlete of antiquity. The soul that made this impression is of a perfection unknown to our races and our climates. It exhibits toes of exquisite grace and a divine heel.' René Desparvieux cried out upon his brother for a madman. "'He is a poet,' sighed Madame Desparvieux. "'Uncle,' said Maurice, "'you'll fall in love with this foot if you ever come across it.' "'Such was the fate of Vivant Denon, who accompanied Bonaparte to Egypt,' replied Gaetan. "'At Thebes, in a tomb violated by the Arabs, Denon found the little foot of a mummy of marvelous beauty. He contemplated it with extraordinary fervor. "'It is the foot of a young woman,' he pondered, "'of a princess, of a charming creature. No covering has ever marred its perfect shape.' Denon admired, adored, and loved it. "'You may see a drawing of this little foot in Denon's atlas of his journeys to Egypt whose leaves one could turn over upstairs, without going further afield, if only Monsieur Sariette would ever let us see a single volume of his library. Sometimes, in bed, Maurice, waking in the middle of the night, thought he heard the sound of pages being turned over in the next room, and the thud of bound volumes falling on the floor. One morning, at five o'clock, he was coming home from the club after a night of bad luck, and while he stood outside the door of the summer-house, hunting in his pocket for his keys, his ears distinctly heard a voice sighing, "'Knowledge, whither dost thou lead me? Thought, whither dost thou lure me?' But entering the two rooms he saw nothing, and told himself that his ears must have deceived him. End of chapter 7